you're all a little anxious here. And that can be a good thing. Again, as you said, when you're anxious, you're thinking about the future. Being able to see the future or to envision what's possible in the future is a fabulously important skill. But it's also like, how can you look at that future and not look at it for yourself in a way that's like, oh my God, all these bad things are going to happen. Something terrible is going to happen. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to choke in front of people. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to, we're going to find a mistake. Set up, worry about self is what we want to dial down. That ability to look into the future is masterful and needed in our world. Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. I'd like to welcome my guest, Dr. Susan Bernstein, today. We are going to talk about a topic that she refers to as anxious achievers. And Susan and I have been connected on LinkedIn for a few months now, and the more that she writes about anxious achievers, the more I'm starting to feel like maybe I am one. So I wanted to invite her on today so that we could have a conversation around this idea of anxious achievers. So Susan, would you mind kind of giving us that that high-level definition or overview of what you mean by an anxious achiever. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. So sometimes I talk about it as an anxious achiever, as the noun form of it. There's also looking at as anxious achievement. So there's two ways. And I actually prefer anxious achievement, but it's easier. It's quicker to say an anxious achiever. And it's a term that I first saw used with Harvard Business Review. They have a podcast called The Anxious Achiever. It's very much about mental health issues, including depression and other mental health issues in the workplace. The first time I saw it, I thought, that's such a perfect description of me. My achievement comes or my achieving comes from a place of anxiousness often, not all the time. And I started using it and I started realizing that all of my favorite clients I work with have that in common with me, that essentially the drive to do well underneath, deep down comes of a place of fear of not being good enough, not getting things done well. And so there's the anxiety to perform well that can have us being hard on ourselves have us beating up on ourselves. I didn't do a good enough job. I didn't prepare enough. Why didn't I say this? And it can drive us into overthinking. It can drive us into overworking for certain. Um, that's one that I felt very, very strongly, especially when I was in management consulting. Uh, I work for myself now, so I don't have to do that, but I can't overwork. It can lead to perfectionism. It can lead to people pleasing. When our achievements are driven by a deep down sense of not being good enough in some way, then what we're really doing is moving away from that experience. We, we try not to have experiences where we're gonna feel insufficient. So we're all trying to always overwork and feel sufficient. Part of this is in looking at what if instead of moving away from that, we transform that and move towards something that's on purpose for us. So you know, your work in terms of pursuit of that purpose 
is very meaningful because that's what we, we can be pulled and move towards that as opposed to moving away from the thing that's scary or bad that we want to avoid. So really using it to our advantage, using that anxiousness as a means of motivation, as opposed to a means of stress. Is that yeah, kind of and, what you mean? Yes. And you and I have had this conversation prior to this podcast about the change in the word anxious. So right. it used to be that I'm anxious, like a kid saying, I'm anxious to go to Disneyland, mom, I can't hardly wait. The bubbling up anticipation of something versus I'm anxious, I'm scared, I'm upset, I'm nervous, I'm shrinking, I'm constricting myself. I do know that part of the word anxious comes from angst, which is to tighten ourselves. When we do that in our bodies, it makes it much harder to enjoy the pursuit of whatever we're working on. So if we want to transform that, part of that is in understanding what it is that we're moving away from, which is normally something to do with not enoughness and catching ourselves in those patterns and then looking for, well, what is it that I want to move towards? So uh, as an example, I'm working with a client who noticed that she was very, very anxious about how she would perform, particularly in opportunities where she needed to speak to senior leadership. And so I said, so yes, there's lots that you could be afraid of happening in that time that you're going to choke in front of them or say something stupid or not know the answer to something. But what's the excitement? What's the draw? What's the, oh, being seen well in their eyes. And I said, well, that's one that's a little harder to control how you get seen in their eyes. What's exciting to you? I have a really important idea to convey to them. And if I can convey that, that's going to make a big impact. Like, let's spend more time immersing in the big impact and getting you to have a felt sense of the excitement of what's possible there so that that helps to dial down the fear. So we know that people are more likely to move forward with something when excitement exceeds fear. So that's part of what I'm helping people to pursue is that inner sense of the excited part of anxiousness. That's really interesting because, you know, I think back to when I was working in an office setting and I don't think it's intentional necessarily that any boss puts pressure on. They want their team to perform really well and to get the work done in a way that is beneficial to the organization. But there is a certain amount of that as an individual, we want to perform to the best of our ability and we start to put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be able to do that, especially if it's something maybe that doesn't come as naturally to you. So like for me, when I, I was working in a marketing department, research was something that just didn't come as naturally to me as what it did to some of my colleagues. If someone would explain to me or we'd talk through it, I was fine with it. But if I was given a stack of research and said, find what this all means, I would just, I felt like I'm not sure that I can do that. Now, I have most recently realized I am much more of a social learner and a auditory learner. So it makes more sense to me now to realize, okay, I talk through these things and it makes more sense. But I put a lot of pressure on myself to try and do it all on my own. 
and perform in a way that I felt was necessary in order to be able to be deemed successful in my job. And as a result, anytime I had to do anything research-wise, I did get very anxious, anxious in a negative way. I'd have a pit in my stomach and I'd be worried about whether or not it was going to be done right or if I missed something. And so what I'm hearing you say is that you would work with somebody like me to figure out ways to be able to overcome that and kind of flip that switch and make it something that is a more powerful experience for me that I'm still going to achieve the goals and objectives that I need, but without beating myself up over it. Yep. Uh, so, so true. So what I find is that most people who have anxious achievement that they, they come from this place have done it for years. It's very likely something they did to themselves, even all the way back in grade school, that they put on the pressure. And anxious achievers tend to learn in a very intuitive way. They learn it in a not, people don't say this to them, but that if, if I put on more pressure, if I put on more effort, things will work out well. And then they carry that forward from grade school. We're like, well, I just, I'll just study more. I'll just write, you know, I, I don't just want the A, I, I want the A plus, I'll do the extra credit. They're always giving more and more and more. And so that's become a pattern to put more and more and more into something. And also that idea that you said, you know, you felt like you had to do it all alone. Most kids in school, unless they went to a very progressive had a very progressive education, have learned they do your homework alone. And it is a reason that companies like anxious achievers because they're like, uh, I don't have to babysit you. I can leave you with a big piece of work and trust that you'll get it done. But that pressure becomes so much and the trying to do it all alone becomes so much. And that success standard that we hold ourselves to is, well, I have to get the A+. And in fact, in business, that's rarely... 99.9% .9 of the clients I'm working with are not doctors. I've worked with a handful of doctors over time. So they're not, my clients aren't literally saving lives. They may work in healthcare and be connected to that, something like that. So we're not saving lives. So part of this is in learning, is in being aware of the pressure patterns we put on ourselves and what we say to ourselves and also what we do in our bodies. Do we clench our jaw and wind up having jaw pain? Do we get a knot in our throat or a lump in the stomach or back aches or, you know, the weight of the world is on our shoulders and our shoulders ache. And so learning what those patterns are and then learning to create new patterns, both of thinking and of our body experience. And it's funny because clients will often say, oh, then I should just go to the doctor and get my back fixed, or I need to just stop clenching my jaw. And there's an ironic turn there that's actually, well, that is one way you could do it, but it's pretty hard on yourself to be like, I'll just stop doing this thing I've always done. And the ironic thing that comes from mind-body psychology is actually to do it a little bit more. So it, my, one of my go-to patterns when I'm really stressed is to tighten up my jaw. And it'll start happening. I'll be like, oh, I have an icky tightness. And I'll want to just give myself a, a you know, a, jaw massage, which is a fine thing to do. But what I know to do that's ironic is I'm going to clench it just a little tiny bit more. And it's sort of saying like, here I am. And somehow that response lets up a bit. 
So I get some instant relief. And then there are other things that I do with my clients that are breathing patterns and helping them to understand the neurobiology and the neuropsychology that they're taking on so that there are simple, simple shifts that don't take all this effort to help make change so that not only can you think in a way that's more expansive and not try to do that project you're talking about all by yourself, absolutely asking for support can be part of what you build into a pattern, but also that you feel better in your body that but because anxiety is very often a clenching, a tightening up, a constriction. And when some of that starts to dissipate and you allow that to dissipate, the sense of relief can be really palpable. Interesting. So I want to go back to what you were saying about doing something just a little bit more. That seems so counterintuitive to me. Is part of that the idea that if you do it a little bit more, you have an even more heightened awareness to it so that you recognize when that jaw clenching or whatever it might be starts to come on and you eventually you recognize it sooner? Then it just kind of makes you get to the point where you recognize it as it's coming on instead of after it's already fully there? Is that is that it kind is of the point of that? Of, it's a big part of it is it's a little bit like if your jaw is already hurting a lot, your body is screaming at you. You want to start to learn to listen when it's whispering so that you can be like, oh, I need to shift something. So in doing it a little bit more, you're bringing attention like, okay, I see my, my pattern and doing it in a way that's non-judgmental, that's not putting any more blame or shame on yourself. It's just like, I'm going to get curious. And part of it is also being like, oh, I can handle this. So it, it's, the, it's not inviting more of it. It's actually saying, I'm giving myself the awareness that I have this. And that's like waking up that body region to say, hey, you can even do this mentally. Hey, I want to hear you earlier on so I can start to make change. Because I talk to people all the time who wind up getting themselves sick with anxiety. I don't want that for anybody. I certainly don't want it because I know I was so anxious when I was in management consulting that I was working 100-hour work weeks back to back and wound up passing out in a big client meeting and waking up on the floor with a bunch of senior level executives standing over me, hovering over me. I'm like, why is the CEO of the company I'm advising standing over me? Wait, and my whole project team and a bunch of other people, why am I on the floor? And it was super disorienting, but I had let my level of anxiety to perform. I wanted to get a promotion and I was like hell bent to make it happen. But I drove myself so hard for two weeks after a car accident that I refused to go to the doctor about. I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I don't need to get checked out. No, 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 no. But I found out later when I was given a month off from work that I had to take, I found out that I had a pinched nerve in my back and that that was causing migraines that I was just chalking up to, oh, I'm working too much. Yeah, well, so what? I have to, I've got to get this promotion. So you were ignoring the signs that your body was telling you yep. until your body basically said, we're not going to let you ignore us anymore. We're going to take a pretty dramatic action here and you're passed out. 
the way I think about it is I lost consciousness to become conscious of, oh, hang on, I'm not paying enough attention to my body at all. Wow. That had to have been frightening. It was very frightening. It was very, very frightening. You know, I was super disoriented afterwards. I remember my project team took me to the hospital and because I wasn't bleeding or, you know, in serious trouble, I wasn't triaged for another four out, five hours. And when they finally got to see me, it was pretty hilarious. They ran a battery of tests and the doctor comes back and he pulls back the curtain on one of those little individual yep. pods you're in at the hospital in, a, in an ER. And I'm with two people on my project team who I was closest to. And the doctor announces very seriously, you have a urinary tract infection. Everybody Thank bursts you. out laughing. And he's like, why is that funny? <laughs> well, maybe she has that too. But did you read any of the chart notes? She passed out. Like she fainted. Do people faint from urinary tract <laughs> infections? And he said, no, I don't think so. It broke the seriousness of all that. And it helped that moment helped me come back to myself. But I started realizing like, wow, this is how disconnected we can be from our bodies when a doctor can say, you have a new urinary tract infection, which might've been true. I mean, I guess it was true that I hadn't noticed either to, to be like, Hey, what was the experience that's going on? And how is this body responding here? Right. And it was that experience that got me to go on a, a kind of a meditation retreat that my friend suggested. And it was very much about paying attention to the heart. It was done by an institute with a funky name, the Institute for Heart Math, which has nothing to do with the math of the heart and has everything to do with heart coherence. Mm -hmm. um, but I started paying more attention to my body then, and then ultimately wound up making a bunch of changes, including going back to school for a PhD in mind-body psychology that fortunately was incredibly experiential in addition to being theoretical we would do things to be in touch with our sensory awareness and our mm -hmm. felt sense in our body of sensations. So things like walking on grass and then walking on gravel and then walking on concrete and noticing what sensations we felt and where we felt them. And did we only feel those sensations in our feet or did it move up anywhere else in our body? And all these curious ways of getting very granular what's called interoception, the feelings that we feel inside our body, like interoception is what lets you know that you're hungry, right? That, okay. that feeling in your stomach or interoception lets you know you're thirsty because you've got um, a sense of dry mouth, right? Mm -hmm. That's the perception on the inside of our bodies. And what's super curious to me I, I noticed this experience when I was in school that paying attention to sensation was just so satisfying. And like, I'm not busy doing anything else and I can be an amazing overthinker. And it was allowing me to be very, very present. And to me, it's a form of meditation. And there are actually mindfulness practices that have everything to do with paying attention to like, can you feel your left big toe and feel the tip of the left big toe and then feel where that toe connects to your foot. We don't usually get that granular, that specific. And when we do, our brains love it because we're very present. And it's very hard, if not impossible, 
to be anxious in those moments because anxiety is about planning and thinking and fretting about the future. But if you're very much in the present, which happens when you pay attention to moment to moment sensation, your brain is like in this happy, I think it's called an alpha state where it's a relaxed open consciousness where it's easier to just allow all the possibilities that can be there, right? It's a way of being deeply present to yourself. Wow. And we're powerful then. Exactly. And so think about the power then that that brings. If you can bring that type of state, even just a small piece of that type of emotional state into the work that you're doing, you're going to be so much more productive and successful in the work that you're doing because you're more present in it. Yeah, I have a I have a saying that I've had for a long time, I think since I finished my PhD in mind-body psychology, that is, if you want a sensational life, pay attention to your sensations. It's There's a level of showing up for ourselves that happens when we do that, that I think it's it's that flow state that people refer to. We allow ourselves to drop more easily into flow when we're really present. So like right now, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm noticing my butt against the chair that I'm sitting on and my back and which parts of my back are contacting the chair and which parts are not. And noticing my left hand. So I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm short. So I often sit in chairs cross-legged. And so I've got my left hand clenched in my, uh, against my right um, leg. And I can feel the warmth of that left thumb against my other fingers. We just can notice all of those things. And it, it's not that I'm not also noticing you, but when I draw even a little bit of attention there, I can be more present to us and our interaction. Right. What are some of the characteristics of a person who is in an anxious achievement mode or, you know, what would, what would a person look for to be more self-aware of, of this in themselves? Yeah. So first of all, noticing the mindset that they bring to any project, are they excited and elated and curious, or are they like, I better get this done, that there's this hard driving need that that can have frenzy about it that can be frantic it's usually a very fast speed that they're going um and that's relative to themselves because we all have our own you know speeds but if you feel sped up versus a time when you're you feel calm and tranquil it's a little bit like thinking of uh, a body of water you know is that body of water calm and placid or is it you know there's a lot of, you know, I'm thinking about ducks or geese flapping their wings furiously. <laughs> all right. the water is going mm -hmm. all over the place. So there's some of that. Um, the mental state um, is very, it can be very hard on ourselves. I need to go faster. I've got to get this done. Why isn't this happening? There's a lot of urgency in that anxiousness. Um, somebody who is working from anxious achievement um, you may or may not see them being hard on themselves overtly. They may not say it. Uh, but sometimes they will, and they'll say things like, I never get this right. I'm always messing up. There's kind of a globalization of difficult feelings towards themselves. 
Um, and they can show up in different ways. For some people, there's a there's a really deep need to please others, that their good enoughness is, uh, from their family system was, well, I'll just please you more. I'll look to find a way to please you, my parent or my family member. And so that, that continues with other people. And so they'll show up uh, in their anxiousness of, I just want the boss to like me. I just want my colleagues to understand what I'm trying to say. Sometimes it shows up as overwork, that they'll um, work more hours, longer hours, harder than other people on a project team. Um, sometimes we just have to do that, but when it becomes a consistent pattern, that can be a, a tip off of anxious anxiety. So it can be things, so it can be the time that we spend, it can be the intensity with which we say things to other people. Um, it can be perfectionism. I've just got to get this right. I've just got to, you know, I'm editing this document. I just need another hour on it. I mean, sometimes we legitimately do, but when that becomes a drive that's hard to pull away from, that may be um, anxious achievement. There are, look, there are times that all of us will get anxious naturally. You know, we want to do a good sure. job and perform well. But when that's the underlying MO, that's when I get concerned for people. And look, unless somebody has clinical anxiety, and that's something different, um, unless somebody has clinical anxiety, most anxious achievers aren't anxious about absolutely everything in their lives. There's normally a few key areas to work on. So like I work a lot with people who have performance anxiety about making presentations, especially in front of senior level executives. That can be a big one. Uh, I have people who feel a lot of anxiety and then we have what you're talking about something new that they're working on and that will demand from themselves the same kind of excellence uh, as something that they've worked on for years like wait how are you why are you expecting that of yourself you're doing something new for the first time it becomes difficult when they don't have a mechanism they may be very aware that they get anxious and anxious fever may know but the worst thing to tell an anxious achiever is just ease up on yourself things like that. Why can't you just ease up on yourself? You know, it's like telling somebody, somebody is frantic, just calm down. If they knew how they would, nobody tries to do this to themselves, right? But it's a pattern that uh, is time for a shift. When somebody recognizes it, that's a good, healthy thing. And then it's time for a shift. And if that's something that they're not able to accomplish on their own. I wound up needing to you know, work through this with the help of a coach and a therapist. So what types of things, you know, would be beneficial for a person to do? You mentioned a therapist and, and a coach, but if they're in the moment, let's say they, they've recognized that they have anxious achievement and they find themselves in a particular instance what would you be some suggestions for them to do besides the, you know, you've already mentioned the one of if you notice that you have this like a clenched jaw or something, do more of it. Are there other things that you recommend to your clients to do to help them in the moment to be able to move beyond what might be holding them back? Yeah. So um, the first is to allow themselves to feel and flag that feeling. So feel like literally feel in their body, like, wow, what do I notice? Do I notice my heart is sped up? Most people don't actually notice that unless their heart is racing and then they're normally at a place that's too hard, but um, they might feel sweaty palms. They might feel a tightening in their jaw. They might feel, you know, their shoulders start to tense up. 
So it's feeling, it's, it's naming the emotion that they're feeling and feeling the sensations. And I encourage people to write it down. Like, okay, I'm having this moment. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling sped up. I'm feeling write down anything they can notice both body and mind. So it could be, you know, I noticed that my jaw is tight and I'm, I'm kind of sweaty and I, this feeling feels like I'm scared. And also the thought that goes with it. And then asking yourself about that thought, is that thought true? So I work with a lot of people who I hear this so frequently from anxious achievers, I'm going to get fired. Now, other people might say to them, that is not going to happen. What are you kidding? You're one of our top performers. Why are you going to, why are you worried you're going to get fired? But you can't just tell an anxious achiever, stop feeling that or ask, why are you feeling that? It's deep seated. It's usually something that's been a longstanding habit or pattern, but to just write it down and start to see, wow, that's what I've been thinking. There's, and I, heartily encourage people clients ask me this all the time well can I just you know go put it in a in notes or an Evernote or just you know type it up on my computer and my answer to this if you don't want it to be effective do that if you want it to be effective get your pen out you know get a journal I always have paper and a pen handy so that I can write this down look I still I struggle with this still myself I had something happen this morning where I was being super anxious on myself. And it was like, I wrote down what I was thinking and just seeing it was like, a, oh, that's my thought. It just, it takes it and it zooms the lens out from me to see in a wider way. And then I can stand back from it and zoom out even more. I'm like, what else would I like to believe instead? Like that I'm going to get fired. I am my own boss. It would be hard for me to get fired, but the client is going to fire me. Yeah. Sometimes I worry that, sure. And, you know, sometimes I talk to that fear and I do know that anxious achievers tend to allow themselves to fantasize about bad things. And that's a really good quality of the mind to be able to see into the future. It's just more helpful when we put that quality of seeing into the future to things that are more likely to actually happen. But it is a, it's a very beneficial thing. Like, you know, I think about people who are attorneys Attorneys are often very anxious because they're writing contracts about situations that might happen. So they have to be spinning ideas in their head all the time of, well, what could happen here? I'm essentially suggesting stop, write down what's, you know, notice the internal state, your sensations, your emotions, and your thoughts, and especially write those out. And especially with the thoughts, start questioning the thought or start transforming the thought what else would I like to think that's at least a little bit better of thought like everything's going to be okay or in this moment I'm fine or something like that and then there are simple techniques that you can do to calm yourself one of the most simple ones I, I love that this is so simple is intentionally breathing and making your exhales longer than your inhales we know from brain science that the brain's waves tend to follow the breath and not the other way around. So if you want to calm yourself, take a nice, long, slow, deep breath out in, excuse me, and then let it out more slowly than you breathed it in. So like, you know, breathe in for a count of four and out for a count of six. It, it really doesn't 
make that much of a difference. You can also do rhythmic breathing, but I think it's just simple to know if I let my exhales be longer than my inhales, I, my body will calm usually within one to two minutes. Mm-hmm. Most of us can take one to two minutes to right. do ourselves. Right. I was talking to someone yesterday who is a very anxious person and you know, she was getting nervous about whether or not she was learning everything correctly. And if, you know, was she was she going to be able to keep track of all of this new information and and all this diverse pieces of information? And I said, you know what, just take a moment. And let's breathe, you know, and I did the exact same thing that you suggested the inhale and then exhale it out for longer. And and I then went and found an article on box breathing Mm-hmm. for her so that it could you know so she could kind of get her arms around the idea of what it really was and and some of that and she stopped me today she saw me again this morning and she said you know I used that again last night and it was it's so calming yes. I don't understand how it works but it is so calming and it was so beneficial both yesterday when I mentioned it to her to begin with and then again when she used it last night she said it was just it was so helpful. Mm-hmm. And the power of our breath is something that I don't think that we often give enough credit to. I heartily agree. I mean, look, breathing is literally inspiration, right? The word in, in, inspiration comes from inspiritus, which means to take in spirit. And on some level, I love that it's like, well, if I don't know what to do in any given moment, spirit knows whatever some big bigger force than me in the world knows and can give me that so sometimes I take solace in that when I'm really really frantic like okay I'm just handed over and you know surrender all of this to my breath and that can feel really good Mm -hmm. also pair that sometimes with just putting two hands over my heart and there's something like we actually know from research that our heart gets an intuition the split second before our mind does really yeah at least that's the that's the research of this institute of heart math that's what they found and i think that's really beautiful to know like what if i just touch literally touch into my heart i mean i cannot reach my hand to my chest but through my chest but put my hands over my heart um that can be incredibly calming Hmm. i had no idea but i'm thinking about different times when i have done that and I mean, I recognize that I have had experienced a sensation like that of, okay, I do feel a little bit more at peace or calm than what I did two seconds ago. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So Susan, are there any trends or any indications that you've seen like a certain type of career or a certain type of role that a person might get into that they tend to have more anxious achievement up issues or is it just really anyone can have it and can fall into it? Uh, I think anyone can have it and fall into it. And I'll say this, uh, I work with a lot of people in professional services and in professional services, there's all kinds of reasons to get anxious. You're delivering for clients. So there's that demand. You have, you're beholden to two masters, your client and your project team. Normally, you're dealing with something very uncertain. They, you know, in professional services like management consulting or um, architecture, 
you're building something, you're creating something that hasn't ever been, a solution that's never been before. So when you're dealing with all that uncertainty, the brain doesn't like uncertainty. And so that can be anxiety provoking. Um, so I think in particular, people in, in the professional services firms can get more anxious. And also it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a profession that tends to attract anxious achievers, partly because I will never forget this. When I was in management consulting my second year uh, on our recruiting team, so we would all not only work for clients, but we also would be on our recruiting team. My second year on the recruiting team, we were down to two candidates and we could only pick one and then we didn't have the budget for both, but they were so identical. The experiences, the kinds of cachet companies that they had worked with before, worked for before and you know their MBA and their grades and their ability to interview well. So the partner in charge says, we're asking like, help us figure out which one of these two to choose. And he says, which one of them is more neurotic? Like, what kind of a question is that? And he said, well, hear me out here. People who are a little bit neurotic will self-police. So they're not the kind of person you have to you know, check in on every day and go, did you get the work done? Did you get the work done? They're more likely to come to you and say, I got the work done, do you need any more? they're, they're going to take care and have that level of responsibility that others might not. So I'm like, oh, okay. We start debate, debating which one of them seem, these two candidates seems like they're more ideal. And then I brought it up. Wait, does that mean I'm neurotic? <laughs> he doesn't miss a beat. And he said, Bernstein, we're all a little neurotic here. <laughs> and I think he was really meaning the same thing as we're all a little anxious here. And that can be a good thing. Again, as he said, when you're anxious, you're thinking about the future. Being able to see the future or to envision what's possible in the future is a fabulously important skill. But it's also like, how can you look at that future and not look at it for yourself in a way that's like, oh my God, all these bad things are going to happen. Something terrible is going to happen. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to choke in front of people. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to, we're going to find a mistake. Set up, worry about self is what we want to dial down. That ability to look into the future is masterful and needed in our world. I mean, that's such an interesting point. To be anxious is that ability to look into the future and anticipate what's coming. But then to be able to separate yourself from internalizing it and becoming so wrapped up in, oh my God, I know what's coming. Or I think I know what's coming and I'm scared of that or I'm excited for it even can really change the way that you present yourself or the way that you handle that situation or those circumstances. But if you can just purely look at it as I'm able to see and see what's coming, that's a very good thing. It is a good thing. It's especially good if we don't um, catastrophize for ourselves, right? That I, I made a mistake on a client project and now I'm going to get fired as the consequent, as, as the future state. Like, wait, is that actually realistic? So sometimes we see futures that aren't actually likely to happen and it's normally for ourselves. That's what I'm talking about. That sure. We're worried something bad is going to happen around or about us. Do you think or have you noticed or maybe you've not even 
thought about this, but one thing that just came to my mind in, in this part of this discussion was, I wonder if people who have visionary in their top five skills of this, of strength finders tend to fall into that anxious achievement trap. I don't know if I want to call it a trap necessarily, but if they fall into that routine more often than someone who doesn't have visionary in their top five, because that's really what the visionary strength is about, is being able to see into the future and, well, or even the futuristic strength. Both of those are are Clifton strengths. Yes. That's really interesting. I mean, have you well, have you I seen anything like that or have you even ventured down looking into that I ha I have formally looked into it but I when I think about it you know having grown up in management consulting I would watch just a you know a very curious way different uh, partners in our firm and I think of some of the most visionary people I know as having measured anxiety for themselves what do I mean by that and I'm thinking about one partner who I worked with. I actually didn't work with him personally. I, I would see him at practice meetings. He was in a different, I was in healthcare and he was in retail. He had the most dazzling sense of humor. He could take anything and make it funny. So in a way, that's a wonderful way of working with anxiety, like just laughing about it and being silly and funny. He could use that to his advantage and to dial down the worries about the future. I think about another partner who I worked with who would channel all of that worry energy and was a rower. And she would actually row across San Francisco Bay from Sausalito to San Francisco, which is pretty sizable distance. She would row in the morning to work. She'd have a set of clothes at work to change into. Um, but it was a way that she would let off a lot of steam. So. I remember asking Sue, do you ever get anxious? She said, I'm anxious all the time, but I do something. I move that. And that is a really wonderful way to deal with anxiety and to do it intentionally. Like I used to put my body on the Stairmaster, but I would never have thought then I would now to let out that feeling. So some, you know, sometimes when I bought a Peloton during uh, this quarantine period and Sometimes when I'm really anxious, I will just imagine spinning out something that I'm flustered or frustrated about. And, but I very intentionally, like, I'm just letting this out of my limbs. So I think visionaries don't have to be anxious uh, for themselves. I don't know that that has to go hand in hand, but it's an interesting, it's a super interesting question that I know like, want to talk to more people who are visionary and say, talk to me about your own, you know, what's, does that ever, is that ever anxiety producing for mm -hmm. you? You know, maybe they're more self-aware of, you know, like if they do know that visionary or futuristic is in their top strengths, they're, they're pretty self-aware of those strengths anyway. And so they have an idea of what to watch for so that they manage that potential anxiety situation differently than what they would if they were unaware that those were a strength point for them. Absolutely. I think about, I'm just thinking akin to the whole thing about being visionary or futuristic is somebody who's a pioneer, who's decided that they're going to bring something out, like lots of entrepreneurs. That's very anxiety producing to have a 
a new product, for example, or a new service on the market. And it takes a lot of internal fortitude to handle all of the uncertainty of, is this going to work? Am I, are we going to run out of money? Uh, all those kinds of questions that if they're self-aware, they could be like, I need to do something to taper down anxiousness about this because otherwise it can overrun them. I mean, it's a lot to handle to take on running a business. So I work with CEOs who are doing things that are pioneering or cutting edge and yeah, they, they could otherwise be consumed by all the thinking, thinking, thinking about what's possible and all the potential scenarios. But again, it's for me, one of the key ways is so simple, but so yet so powerful to help is overthinking doesn't tend to help. It's rarely the answer, but getting into the body and getting present and getting calm builds a space. Imagine a closet that's totally full to the brim and that's your mind. And then you want to put one more thing in, <laughs> like open the closet, everything comes falling out on you. You need to make space if you're going to put something else in the closet. And the easiest way I know to do that space making when you're overthinking is to not go to more thinking. It's to focus that thought attention in the body in moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Just naming out loud or, in, or to yourself quietly in your mind what you're feeling moment to moment in the most neutral way possible. So not like, oh, my aching right arm. God dang it. I need to go to physical therapist again. <laughs> That's not a good example, um, but instead might be, you know, I can feel my um, my right hand touching my face, and I can feel the index finger of my right hand touching my temple, and my temple feels warm, and I can feel the cool feeling of my feet touching the ground, and my left foot feels just a little warmer than my right, and I can feel a, a kind of a buzzy feeling in my back more left than right and it feels a little bit like it's uh it's about two inches deep into my body and it feels like it's the shape of an octopus like whatever Mm -hmm. but being in that ability to stay present it's like narrating your what's going on in yourself moment to moment as this ability to quiet the noise in our mind so that it's like, okay, now I have a closet that has more space to put new ideas and new things. I need mm-hmm. to get into it. That's a really great analogy. I know because we all know what a, an overstuffed closet <laughs> is going to do to you. It's just going to like, you know, collapse onto you when you open up the door. But if you can be very aware and create some space into that, then you're going to be able to function better. Yeah. And it's the ironic way to, you know, it's, we would just think, well, I need to stop thinking, or I have people tell me all the time when I'm working with them, I just need to learn to meditate and stop my thoughts. <laughs> no, you don't need to stop your thoughts. And that's not actually what meditation is about watching your thoughts, but I find it much more satisfying to what I call take the elevator down and be in our bodies. I think most of us walk around like a giant lollipop with all the attention up in our heads and a stick's worth of attention in the body. But we're not, you know, heads in jars like in Futurama. Right. <laughs> we're, we're human beings. And I, I would love us to use more of the wisdom of the body, of the breath, of 
you know, our tactile sense, feeling our, like touching our own body. It can be super calming to take one of your hands and just very, very gently run your fingers along the palm of your other hand. Just really letting yourself feel both receiving the touch on one hand and initiating the touch on the other. And if you're very, very aware of that, it's super calming and like, who teaches us this stuff? I right. feel really, really fortunate. My, my whole first year of my PhD program, yes, we got some theory, but most of it was experiential. And then we, for the other two years of in class was also somewhat experiential, not as much, but I would have been satisfied with my PhD with just the first year of doing lots and lots of experiments of being present in the body in all kinds of different ways. Right. Well, Susan, this has been such an interesting conversation and and has me thinking about a lot of different aspects of how I can use this for myself, but also how I can use it to help others that I know to be able to just kind of ground themselves and be more aware in the moment of what's, what's going on. If you wouldn't mind, please tell my listeners how we can get, how they can find you, where they can follow you, get in touch with you, that sort of thing. And maybe just a little bit about yourself, because we didn't do that at the beginning of our conversation, but share what you would like about you and... Super. So my website is drsusanbernstein.com. So it's D-R for doctor and then Susan, S-U-S-A-N, and then Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. So drsusanbernstein.com is my website. Um, The place I hang out the most is LinkedIn. So if you look up Dr. Susan Bernstein, uh, you'll find me and I post somewhere between three to five days a week. Uh, generally on things related to anxious achievement, related to burnout, related to resilience. Um, so please, if you listen to this podcast and you got something from it, please connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that this podcast is, you know, drop a little note and say, hey, I heard you on Amy's podcast. I would love that. Um, that's, a, that's probably the best place to find me where I'm regularly posting content. So if you had just one closing thought for someone who has really, you know, been listening to this and thought to themselves, oh, this, she's describing me, what would you tell them to do to, to help them through the next incidents of, of anxiousness that they might feel? Beautiful. First, just feel it in your body. Feel the sensations of it and feel what's most prominent for you. Just let it be there as neutrally as you can and say hello to that sensation. Just be like, oh, tightness in my chest, hello. Or, oh, clenched jaw, hello. The way you'd be saying hello to a new friend, welcoming it. And then just pause and then ask that body part that you noticed, what do you want me to know? And pause and wait. And you may not get word answers. You might get a a visual picture in your mind. You might get a felt sense of something. You might just get an intuition. But just let yourself be, first being with that sensation will help your mind settle. Second, being with it in a neutral way will just allow you to be like, yeah, and feeling anxious happens. 
you're still alive, you're still kicking and just letting it be. So rather than trying to make the anxiety go away, be in the sensations of it, have that sensation-based life, say hello to the sensation and ask the sen one of the sensations, what do you want me to know? You may or may not get an answer right away. You may not get an answer at all the first couple of times you try. That's okay, that's normal. But the more you start listening to the wisdom of the body, the more you can hear your body speaking when it whispers, so you don't have to wait till it yells at you. And I don't want anybody waiting till it yelled like I did and passed out. You have the ability to tune into yourself, to ground yourself, to be present to yourself so that you can thrive. That's really lovely. Thank you so much, Susan. Mm -hmm. I am very appreciative of you sharing your time with me this afternoon and uh, I will include all of the links that you shared in my show notes so that somebody can easily find you thank you again so much I appreciate it thank you this was such a fun beautiful conversation your questions have me intrigued too now I have some <laughs> searching and questioning to do now great I'm happy that I could offer you another avenue to to go and research <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that my geek, my geek outside is really excited. Hey, it's Amy. Does this episode have you wondering if you know your brand as well as you could? Maybe you're thinking, how can I have more clarity around my business purpose and its mission, vision, and values? Or what drives my brand personality and how does that impact my business? First, I want you to know you are not alone. I see this a lot. It is easy to jump headfirst into developing marketing tactics, thinking you can just figure out the rest as you go. But there comes a time when you need to hit that pause button and get really clear on what your brand stands for and how you make your target audience the central character in your brand story. If you're thinking, this sounds so familiar, then you and I should have a chat about clearly defining your brand and story. Just head over to amyaustinmarketing.com and send me a note. I hope to speak with you soon. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening.